0: Last time on jury duty, the trial of Robert Durst.
1: Took the body parts and put any, everything else there that was bloody, whatever it was, that I ended up cleaning up the place with, put them in the garbage bags. So you basically just decided you were gonna do it? I drink. figured it was deep. Gonna drop it, it's gonna sink. <clears throat> Who cares where the tide is going? It's underwater, nobody's gonna see it.
2: Right. But the bags didn't sink? No. What happened?
1: They floated. Just because it's heavy doesn't mean it's gonna sink.
0: The next morning, a young boy fishing with his father found a human torso floating in the bay and alerted local law enforcement.
1: And I I had been told by the detective that uh, he'd been charged with murder. Bail has been set at $250,000. He looks at me and says, do you have
2: $250,000? I said, well, not on me. But was your intention when you put up the two hundred fifty thousand dollars to run away? Oh, goodbye, two hundred fifty thousand dollars, goodbye, jail. I'm, I'm out.
3: It says what D.D. is doing to me puts me in the same place as what Kathy
0: did to me. That's D.D. as in Douglas Durst, and the position that Kathy put Durst in led to her alleged murder. Lewin allows the jury to read between the lines. It's possible Durst was planning on killing his brother.
1: Self-defense is a very viable plea in the state of Texas.
0: They they, they put in front of the
1: jury about a thousand times. Was there anything that Robert Durst could do after finding Morris Black dead to to prevent his death or to change the manner in which he died? And they they brought up about a zillion examples. Can you unstrike a match? No. Can you unring a bell? No. If somebody's dead, is there anything you can do to prevent them from dying? No.
0: Robert Durst was acquitted of murder. After pleading guilty to evidence tampering, he was sentenced to five years in prison in 2004, but was given credit for time served and released on parole in 2005. That could have been the end of it, but Lewin tells the jury that Robert Durst loves to talk about Robert Durst. I'm Carrie Antholis, and this is Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst, presented by Crime Story Media and Acast.
3: Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right?
0: During the opening statements, Lewin has kept his notes on the podium. The pages for the entire opening are too numerous to lay in a neat pile, so they have been divided into segments, each about an inch thick and held together by black binder clips. Although Lewin exchanges the notes at regular intervals, he rarely checks them. His eyes have been fixed on the jury, and he takes deliberate steps side to side as he delivers the prosecution's narrative of events. While Lewin isn't focused on the notes, he's well aware that the jurors may be watching them for an indication of when the opening statements will wrap up. He swaps out one stack for another and flashes a knowing smile at the jury.
3: You guys have probably seen a lot of these. This last one, I promise. What if I would have said I'm like, I'm almost half done? (laughs) It's
0: another moment of levity from Lewin that serves to re-engage the jurors. This opening may be lengthy, But Lewin keeps everyone on their toes.
3: Andrew Jarecki and Mark Smerling, that's Mark Smerling on the left, that's Andrew Jarecki on the right. They are filmmakers and they are, we're partners in a production company called Hit the Ground Running, sometimes abbreviated as HTGR.
0: Andrew Jarecki and Mark Smerling are the filmmakers behind the 2015 HBO documentary series The Jinx. They both grew up in Scarsdale, New York, and became close friends when they were young, 12 or 13 years old. Eventually, the pair parted ways. Jarecki went to college at Princeton while Smerling attended Syracuse University and later went to film school at USC. It wasn't until years later that the young men reunited to work together on a documentary called Capturing the Freedmen's, a film which received a nomination for an Academy Award in 2003. For their next endeavor, Jarecki and Smerling set out to produce a scripted movie based on a true story.
3: They decided for the next project, let's do a fictionalized version of um, Bob Durf's life. And that was All Good Things. Now, All Good Things was marketed, produced, etc. as Bob Durf's life story dramatized. So they changed the names. And they changed uh, some of the actual information that you know. So as an example, in the movie, which you're going to see, the Morris Black character ends up killing the Susan Berman character as like a hitman for Bob Durst. There's no evidence whatsoever that that occurred. That was created. And they did not use the actual names. Um, Ryan Gosling played Bob Durst. Uh, if somebody's going to play you, that's pretty good. Um, and Pearson Dunst played Kathy.
0: Jarecki and Smirling started research for all good things in 2005. During the process, the filmmakers talked to Robert's and Kathy's friends, but they couldn't get a hold of Durst. It seemed reasonable that Robert would be reluctant to participate in a film that portrayed him as a murderer, even if it was fictionalized. But when All Good Things was released in 2010, the filmmakers discovered they had an unexpected fan.
3: Now, in advance of the movie's release, Bob Durst obtained a screenplay, a copy of the movie. And after reading the script, Durst attempted to contact Andrew Jarecki by phone. Andrew Jarecki is going to testify. He's going to tell you that he was told that Bob Durst had reached out to the head of Magnolia Pictures, who was making the movie with Andrew Jarecki, saying, um, this is Bob Durst and I need to talk to Andrew Jarecki. Um, the head of Magnolia Pictures did not believe it was Bob Durst, thought it was a prank, thought it was Andrew Jarecki imitating Bob Durst, but it turns out it was. It absolutely was. Bob Durst reached out, he had gotten a hold of the script, he had read it, and he liked it. So. Durst and Jarecki eventually spoke on October 28, 2010. Andy Jarecki has a habit of recording his phone calls. So the first time that he and Bob Durst spoke, it's recorded. Okay. As you will hear, the idea to do the interviews that would end up forming the basis of the genes did not come from Andrew Jarecki, it came from Bob Durst. Anyway, so I, I, I have an
1: idea. I have no idea if it makes any sense, but, but you're the one to talk to about it. Sure. Now the background is that I have over the years been approached by all the various interview shows. First in the early 80s, when this all first started to happen, uh, with Connie Chung on ABC, but more recently I've been approached partly before, or I don't know if partly or primarily or whatever, more aggressive by those Friday evening interview shows. 2020 and Dateline and a whole bunch of the lesser stars. And I am thinking about doing one of those, and while I was thinking about it, I remembered that the movie you did on the Freedmen's and I think there was uh, some some discussions or something like that, which were really not part of the movie, but were a separate something or other. And and that is is my thought. Um, that would it make sense for, as in some capacity, there to be an interview with me? Related to what's in the movie.
3: So, these interviews actually happened. Um, They would later become the basis for the HBO miniseries, The Jinx. So, on November 6, 2010, Jarecki provided Durst with a private screening of All Good Things. This is only uh, about a week after they first talked. And this occurred at the Peninsula Hotel in Beverly Hills.
0: Lewin informs the jury that after seeing the film, Robert Durst was even more excited to collaborate with Jarecki and Smirling Not only was he eager to record DVD commentary for the movie, but he was also open to taping personal interviews. Durst's attorneys weren't as enthusiastic.
3: Those lawyers told him, do not do the interviews. Don't do it. Only bad can happen. But the evidence is going to show that Bob Durst loves media attention when he's in jail and he's talking to his friends. He's asking, what are they saying about me? Send me the news articles. What reporters are covering it? And so then it's going to show that kind of like a moth to life. Bob Durst ends up being attracted <laughs> to this idea.
0: On December 11, Durst and his attorney, Steve Ravinowitz met with Jarecki and Smerling to iron out last minute details. After that meeting, Durst recorded the DVD commentary for All Good Things at a studio in Culver City, California. He then accompanied Jurecki and Smirling to the Lowe's Hotel in Santa Monica, where Durst sat for what would be three days of interviews. In the footage shown to the jury, Durst wears a gray-knit sweater over a crisp collared shirt. The video is almost a decade old. As a result, there's a noticeable difference between the elderly but animated man on the screen and the frail, sallow-skinned man at the council's table. Lewin plays an interview clip in which Durst reflects on his feelings about all good things.
2: You know, that day, we talked a bunch and then uh, arranged for you to see the movie for the first time. That was the clincher. Then I knew I wanted to do this with you. And how did you feel when you when you when you sat down to see the movie? Did you have trepidation about it? And how did you feel when you were watching oh, it? Oh, enormous trepidation. Uh, but I I
1: I felt the movie was very, very, very close in much of the ways about what pretty much happened.
3: Now remember, that movie that Mr. Durst has watched depicted him as a triple murderer. And Mr. Duris's response to seeing that movie is going to be. The movie was very, very close in much of the ways about what pretty much happened. Now, Mr. Durst expanded upon that and explained why he had agreed to do the interviews with Durecki.
1: You had really done the, the research on me. The screenplay was not a hatchet job. And I had always planned on someday, the someday was always way out there, but Someday, giving interviews about what happened as opposed to what people think or believe or something like that happened, I was immediately attracted to the idea of having you do the interview. I felt strongly that the interview would not be a hatchet job because you didn't do a hatchet job in the movie.
3: Now, the movie is going to be shown to you Not because the movie itself is evidence, but because when Mr. Durst sees this movie, which depicts him as a triple murderer, he's going to adopt it. He's going to say, yeah, that's accurate. He's going to say, I didn't think you did a hatchet job.
0: Lewin explains to the jury that while Durst enjoyed all good things, there were a few moments that rubbed him the wrong way. During the DVD commentary. Durst told Jarecki that there was one scene in particular that disturbed him.
1: And this made me feel bad about the movie, Andrew. I mean, yes. the, floor, the idea that I could kill Igor, I don't like.
3: What Mr. Durst was upset about was that the movie, and it was stronger than an inference, the movie basically strongly implied that Bob Durst had murdered his dogs. he was going to show that Bob Durst was very upset about it. Devin's going to further show that Bob Durst had every right to be upset about it because, unlike the other killings, it
0: wasn't true. Lewin now pivots to examining one of Durst's habits that became a major part of the jinx.
3: Now, during the interview, Durst frequently admitted that he has a tendency to talk to himself.
2: You've talked about the talking to yourself. Was that something that you were aware of, that that From happened? From the time or? I
1: was a little boy, I, I was been talking to myself, and I would some frequently get very, I always got in fights a couple of times. I would get very animated and with my hands, and I'd be talking to myself a, whole, a bunch of times, a whole bunch of times, because um, you know, I'd be staring wherever I was staring and talking to myself and waving my hand. I had guys come over and see. Hey, you got something to say to me, buddy? Uh, particularly in Texas, if you want to say something, say it. And I would always find, sorry, man, I'm just talking to myself. Well, you're looking
3: right at me.
1: Strictly a coincidence, I'm sorry.
3: Now The evidence in this case to demonstrate that, as Mr. Durst said, often when he is talking to himself, sometimes he is not even aware that he is doing so. On multiple occasions during the filming of the interviews, he was caught on film talking to himself to the point that he was reminded by his attorney, who was present, Bob, you're mic, they're recording this. They can hear you. Mr. Durst was well aware that if he had a microphone on, that what he was saying was being recorded. Durst would even talk to himself between takes. Um, Here you can hear him literally practicing his answers to a question.
0: On screen, Durst sits alone in a sleek, modern armchair, resting between takes. He takes a sip of water and then mouths a series of sentences as he taps his thigh and nods his head. It's possible to discern Durst's words by looking at his lips, but his mumblings are barely audible
3: i'm going to just read it. it's hard for you guys to hear we'll have it up when you can hear it better what mr Durst said is i did not knowingly purposely lie not knowingly purposely lie i did not knowingly purposely intentionally lie at all i did make mistakes uh my lawyers told me you go in there and the jury catches you lying in front like if what the da says about the past you're lying and rock for the rest of your life in prison you can't go in there and lie like that I did not. Well, I made an assist.
0: After three days of interviews in December of 2010, Mark Smerling and Andrew Jarecki continued their research in hopes that they could construct a documentary out of the footage.
3: In August of 2011, the filmmakers interviewed Susan's son, Sarab, and encouraged him to look through <laughs> old files of personal effects.
0: Sarab wasn't Susan's biological son, but she had essentially adopted him and his sister after dating Sarab's father, Paul Kaufman, in the late 80s. As a result, Sarab was exceptionally loyal to Susan. After her death, he received all of Susan's personal effects, many of which he put into a box that he labeled the box of pain, because he couldn't look at these items without feeling overwhelmed with grief. Lewin explains that in the wake of Susan's passing, Sarab was contacted by Robert Durst and they developed a friendship. Robert gave Sarab close to $200,000 to go to college and they later went into business together. When Robert was awaiting trial for the murder of Morris Black, he even paid for Sarab to fly to Galveston for moral support. Due to Sarab's relationship with Durst, he was hesitant to cooperate with Jarecki and Smirling. Ultimately, he decided to look through his box of paint for evidence that Durst gave Susan money before the reinvestigation of Kathy's death occurred. Sarab hoped such evidence would prove that Susan didn't blackmail Durst and that Robert only gave the money because he cared for her.
3: So he goes back through and he finds the letter. Now, upon doing so, he made a <clears throat> startling discovery. A year and a half before the murders, Durst sent Susan a letter. This is the letter that is referred to as the Sereb Letter and the Sareb envelope. At the top is what is basically embossed stationery with Bob Durst's New York address at the time. It's dated um, March 3rd, 1999, but it says, Susie, now and again I think about old times. Good luck, Bobby. However, far more interesting than the letter was the envelope that it arrived in. Susan Berman, 1527, Benedict Canyon, Beverly Hills. Beverly is spelled wrong. Sarah gave Mark Smerling the letter in the envelope.
0: Lewin explains that by the time that Smerling and Jarecki saw the Sarah letter, they had already obtained a copy of the cadaver note from Detective Paul Coulter.
3: So obviously, when they look at the envelope, we're gonna you're gonna see the writing in a minute, they're gonna tell you that moment they knew. Bob Durst murdered Susan Berman. Bob Durst likely murdered Kathy Durst. And now the stories about Galveston. Didn't
0: really add up. A photo of the Sarab envelope appears on Lewin's PowerPoint. Susan's address is written in familiar blocky capital letters. The words have a distinctive slant to the right. The footing of the L's have a peculiar hump, and most notably, Beverly is spelled wrong. B-E-V-E-R-L-E-Y, just like it was in the cadaver note. The similarity of the handwriting in the two documents is uncanny.
3: Now, they did not immediately go to the police. There are no legal duty to do so. And I'm not going to stand up here and tell you that first and foremost, in Jarecki and Smerwin's mind was, okay, how can we get this crime solved? It wasn't. They wanted to finish their project and they wanted to confront Bob Durst.
0: Lewin tells the jury that the filmmakers wanted to confront Durst with the envelope and to catch his reaction on tape. But Durst wasn't interested in more interviews. Now he was avoiding them.
3: Andrew is going to take the stage. He's going to tell you there was a time where um, Bob Durst called him from a restaurant that was playing, um, I think it was like Spanish music, and he told him that He was in Mexico or Italy, except he was just in a restaurant uh, where they were were playing music. Um, Bob Durst kept delaying this last interview. And then Andrew Jarecki is going to tell you about a situation that's just, you can't make this up.
0: Lewin explains that after months of Durst dodging the filmmakers, Jarecki got a call from a stranger who said he was at the gym and he found a backpack.
3: The guys, says, I found this, and inside the fact that, first of all, there was a lot of marijuana, um, and number two, there's um, there was an address book, and I opened it up,
0: and there wasn't a lot in it, but the first name was Andrew Jurecki. It turns out that the backpack belonged to Robert Durst.
3: Andrew was able to contact Bob Durst and say, "Bob, I got your backpack back." Andrew's going to tell you that was one of the key things that got the interview process back going on. And that led to the final interview on April 18, 2012, uh, where Bob Durr sat down for an interview. His first with Jarecki nearly a year and a half. Andrew's gonna tell you, he started off this movie, this, this project, like he started off Capturing the Freedmen, with no preconceived notions. He started off, and Andrew is gonna tell you In some ways, he and Bob Durst have some things in common in terms of where they're from, who their fathers are, etc.
0: Andrew Jarecki is the son of Henry Jarecki, a psychiatrist who became a commodities dealer in 1970 and made a fortune selling precious metals. He then sold his business to run an investment bank and now produces films and is a prominent philanthropist. A published report puts Henry Jarecki's net worth at $1.3 billion. He owns two islands in the British Virgin Islands, and there's a species of lizard named in his honor. Like Seymour Durst, loomed large over Robert. Henry Jarecki loomed large over Andrew.
3: Andrew felt a connection to Bob Durst um, that made it hard. But he also is going to tell you that once he got the serum envelope and he looked at it, and he compared it, that was it. And he wanted to get the confession, and then his plans were that after that was done, that at some point, he would take that information to the authorities. So they sat down for this interview. During the interview, Jarecki asked Durst about the Sarah letter in the envelope. Durst had no idea that Jarecki had them in his possession. So this is an envelope, there, there's no question about it. Andrew Recky and Mark Smurley are going to hit Bob Durst with this incriminating evidence and they're gonna see what they get. So
2: I wanna show you the envelope that that letter came in. Would you read me the address on this envelope?
1: Robert Durst, 42467, Wall Street, New York, UR 10005
2: and who you sent it to? Susan Berman,
1: 1527, Benedict Canyon, Beverly Hills, California. Beverly spelled wrong, California, 90210. So, which is, you know, the zip code that you want in Beverly Hills, but you just didn't want Susie's neighborhood.
2: So, um, so obviously I want to ask you about the cadaver note, the famous cadaver note. Can you read me the spelling of Beverly Hills?
1: These fifteen twenties have been better at
2: Canyon Cadaver. Same misspelling. So Beverly is spelled the same way on this and the same way on this. Same misspelling. And what is that? Say to you.
1: Well, I mean, the writing looks similar and the spelling is, is the same, so I can see the conclusion the cops were draw.
2: And I think this, I mean, this is a comparison of the two, right? Which is, uh... Very similar. So, I guess the question is, did you write the cadaver note? No, I didn't write the cadaver note. So you wrote this, but you didn't write this.
1: I definitely wrote this, but I definitely did not write that.
2: Even though the Beverly spelled the same. Very similar.
1: similar. similar.
2: And if, um, I mean, this, it's similar.
1: I was about to say, well, these are block letters, and how are you going to write that other than than, that? I mean, mean, it's almost like a, a typed thing. It's going to look two typewriters,
2: is going to look the same. So you wrote one of these, but you didn't write the other one? I wrote this one, but I did not write the cadaver one. And can you tell me which one of these you wrote, or which one you didn't write?
3: No. One's the cadaver note, one is the serif note, the envelopes. Bob Durst could not tell which one is which. He said he wrote the serif note, he said he did not write the cadaver note.
0: From Andrew Jarecki and Mark Smerling's perspective, they had achieved what they set out to do during the interview. Confront Durst about the resemblance between the cadaver note and the Sarab letter. They had no idea that the defining moment of their series would happen seconds after the interview ended.
3: Now towards the conclusion of the interview, while Durst was still wearing his microphone, he went to use the bathroom.
1: Some place is my bag. I, I am going to go use the restroom which is right here. Okay. Okay. Except that it's locked. Yeah, Unless it's me. Oh someone's in the bathroom. Oh, okay. Or maybe this is the bathroom. Yeah, that's right. the bathroom. You're right. This is the bathroom. There it is. You're caught. You're right, of course. But you can't imagine.
0: Lewin points out that when Bob Durst enters the bathroom, before the door can even close.
3: The first thing Bob Durst says is, there it is, you're caught. Then the door closes. Then you hear all the other things, and then you hear very clearly, killed them all, of course.
0: The audio from the hot mic continues after Durst emerges from the bathroom and encounters the filmmakers in the hallway.
2: I'm reefing uh, Zach on this idea for Monday. Is Zach to be a part of it, and the Nick
1: Chavin. Yes, that's just what was on my mind, is, was Nick Chavin. Now, I'm happy that, that you rec- record everything that's said and that you use whatever you want with one, is, is that my dinner?
0: The interview with Robert Durst that included the cadaver note revelations and Durst's bathroom audio utterances was recorded in April of 2012. At that same time, and unbeknownst to the filmmakers of The Jinx, detectives had reopened their investigation into the death of Susan Berman.
3: On December 19, 2012, Detective Shalding is going to testify that he met with FBI agents in Los Angeles. One of those FBI agents was an individual named Eric Perry from New York. The evidence is going to show that Eric Perry became involved in this case when Douglas Durst's security chief made a complaint to the FBI because Douglas Durst was afraid that Bob Durst was going to kill him.
0: Investigators were interested in exhuming Susan Berman's body to look for DNA evidence that might help identify her killer.
3: Detective Shannon's going to tell you that in the end, he's the investigator. He makes decisions, and he made the decision in this case, based on all the information he's been told, that it did not make sense to exhume Susan's body for DNA, because one, she'd been shot in the back of the head with no signs of a struggle, and two, her body had been processed and cleaned in a manner that you weren't going to get any DNA, and that if you did, it was likely going to be what we call transfer, and an artifact, meaning that it's from uh, people handling the body not related to the crime.
0: Lewin makes this point repeatedly. There was no DNA evidence to be found. Exhuming Susan's body wouldn't have made a difference. His emphasis on this topic serves to counteract any assumptions that jurors may have made based on their viewing of CSI, or law and order. The lack of DNA doesn't make this case unwinnable for the prosecution. Lewin is reminding the jury that other circumstantial evidence can be just as powerful as what they've seen on TV.
3: The evidence is also going to show that eventually, Detective Shanleyan did have contact with Jarecki and Smerlin. However, they are not the ones that instituted this case
0: mm.
3: being investigated. That was done by the FBI and by LAPD, uh, Detective Shanley, and other members of Robby, the Psycho Division. On October 15, 2014, Jeremy emailed Durst and his lawyer, Steve Rabinowitz, informing them that the documentary had been sold and would be airing on HBO. On February 8, 2015, the first episode of the six-part documentary series with James premiered on HBO, now, the episode's aired every Sunday night at the conclusion on March 15, 2015. What's important is that it wasn't until the fifth episode, which aired on March 8th, the evidence will show, that the defendant became aware that Sarah Kaufman had been cooperating with the producers. Durst watched the episode live from his residence in Texas. Now, how do we know that? Because Sheriff Kaufman is going to testify that immediately upon the conclusion of that episode, Bob Durst calls him, freaked out. Sheriff can testify that Durst was furious that Sheriff had given the filmmakers and not him, Durst, the letter. On March 11, 2015, detectives. From LAPD obtained an arrest warrant from a Superior Court judge, meaning that they had probable cause to arrest him for Susan Burgess' murder.
0: Investigators immediately traveled to Durst's residence at the Robin Hood Condominium Complex in Houston. But by the time they got there, Durst was already on the run. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. on the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst.
3: I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, you know, to lay my cards on the table. I'm here talking to you today because I truly believe, Bob, I don't think you feel that badly about Morris. I don't know how you feel about Kathy, but here's what I do know. I know that when you killed Susan... That was not something you wanted to do. Do, do you know how I know that? You know, Are you interested in why I know that?
1: I'm gonna stay away from killing Susan. Well, you remember what Susan told me about Bob, which was, there's nothing we can do for her now, she's gone, but you know, he's
3: not. I can tell, Nick, it's very funny. You've been kind of waiting for this call from us, And trying to figure out how you were gonna, what you were gonna say and how you're gonna handle it. Am I right? You're right, 100%. Just let it out, Nick. Tell us what Bob said. Dinner concluded.
1: And it was then that I, as we got up to leave, I realized that we hadn't discussed the two things that he had mentioned, Kathy and Susan. I felt kind of weird that I didn't bring it up. We walked out the door. This is hard. We walked out the door and on the sidewalk I said, we wanted to talk about Susan. And Bob said, I had to. It was her or me.
0: I had no choice. Jury Duty The Trial of Robert Durst was created by Carrie Antholis. This episode was hosted and produced by Carrie Antholis and co-produced by Chris Tarricone. The episode was written by Molly Miller with contributions from Karen Ann Coburn, Sean Smith, and Chris Tarricone. The episode was edited by Tristan friedberg rodman Music was provided by Strike Audio. For more information about the Robert Durst trial, head over to crimestory.com. This has been a Crime Story Media and ACAST presentation. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst.